Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Dr. Frank Mitlerner from UC Davis. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. Now, Dr. Mitlerner is a professor and cooperative extension specialist in the Department of Animal Science, College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences, UC Davis. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you come to be um, a extension specialist at UC Davis? Well, I grew up back in the old country in, in Germany and uh, lived there for 27 years, uh, studied agricultural engineering and animal science. Um, and that was right after the wall came down in Germany. And uh, I was the first West German to study in East Germany. That was actually a move that was very atypical because at that time everybody went the other way from the East to the West. But I never regretted it. I had a wonderful time in Leipzig at Leipzig University, uh, did a degree in agriculture engineering and tropical subtropical agriculture and uh, studied and uh, um, interned a lot overseas in tropical subtropical countries. Obviously, Germany is not a tropical or subtropical country, but I always um, had an interest in international work and um, did work in Paraguay, um, extensive uh, beef production systems. Um, then from there, I went uh, to Texas, did my PhD in uh, at Texas Tech University and uh, studied uh, environmental management of uh, beef cattle there. And uh, then in 2002, I joined the faculty here at UC Davis in the Department of, uh, in the Department of Animal Science here at UC Davis. And uh, I'm an air quality specialist. So I study the impact animal agriculture has on air. Um, particles, um, gases such as ammonia or greenhouse gases, um, odors, all different kinds of uh, atmospheric issues uh, associated with animal agriculture. Um, so that's my primary area to quantify those air impacts of animal agriculture and mitigate those. Um, but I also have a research interest in other sustainability issues such as animal welfare, even worker issues, uh, which are an important sustainability topic. Um, and um, yeah, so uh, I do that. And I'm also the director of what's called the CLEAR Center, a sustainability center for research and communication of sustainability topics in and around animal agriculture. Now, you said extensive beef systems. What do you mean by extensive? Yeah, so beef can be produced in an intensive uh, system, such as, uh, let's say, beef feedlots, uh, where animals are finished, where beef animals are finished before they go to slaughter. And that's pretty typical here in, uh, in the United States. Um, but of course, um, beef is also raised extensively on large uh, uh, pastures, let's say. And that's um, in the United States. That would be the ranches we have. Uh, and ranch, uh, ranch production is, of course, uh, very typical for much of the world, whether you go to Australia or to 
South American countries or here in the United States, um, pasture-based systems are very common and they are often referred to as extensive production because you have a lot of land that you allow the animals to graze on. Um, a thought occurs to me, did, did German come in handy in Paraguay or? Oh, yes. <laughs> Actually, the reason why I went to uh, do my, my master's uh, fieldwork in Paraguay was to brush up my Spanish. And little did I know that the area where I landed in the western part of Paraguay was uh, sparsely populated. The only people there were Toba and Guarani Indians and a bunch of Mennonites who spoke a language that was um, somewhat familiar, or it sounded somewhat familiar, but I couldn't really figure it out until I really paid more attention. It was a German, the way it was spoken 150, 200 years ago in Germany uh, by Mennonites who uh, immigrated to uh, Paraguay a long time ago. And so I, it took me a while to get used to it, but my Spanish um, suffered as a result because nobody spoke Spanish to me. Is, is that plot Deutsch? Is that? Yeah, yeah, mm. say the mm. least. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, the, the previous discussion about extensive uh, reminds me of uh, and leads into the, the conversation about people talk about agricultural land and they can fuse that with arable land. So arable land is agricultural land, but not all agricultural land is arable. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's that's very important. Globally, we are really quite uh, resource limited with respect to uh, how much or how little land we have available to grow food. Um, in fact, I can just depict this to you in a, in a nice way, I think. Just imagine the sheet of paper being uh, the surface of the entire earth, okay? If I now go ahead and I fold this, um, and I fold it twice until it's approximately postcard size, then what you see now is the total amount of land in the world, so approximately postcard size. If you now think of a, of a business card as all the land in the world that's agricultural, Again, the postcard size is all land, but the business card size is all agricultural land. Um, <clears throat> then you will see how limited we are with respect to the resources we have available to us. So imagine this business card being all agricultural land. I will now fold it into one piece that's two thirds its original size and the other piece that's one third its original size. And then I will rip my own business card into pieces. The larger of the two, is the agricultural land that's referred to as marginal land. It's called marginal because you can't really grow crops there because the land is not either not fertile enough to grow crops or there's not enough water available. And so how do we use that two thirds of all agricultural land? We use it largely with ruminant livestock. Why? Because these ruminants are capable of eating um, the largely cellulitic uh, material that grows there, cellulose material or containing material such as grasses and certain legumes and so on. Um, but you can't really grow crops there. The one third of my business card is the total amount of land, agricultural land in the world that is um, arable land. And that means that is where you can grow crops for either humans or, or animals. And that's how resource limited we are. Um, it's really important 
to mention that two-thirds of all agricultural land in the world is indeed used for livestock, but most of it could not be used um, for food production by any other means. And, and perhaps shouldn't be, because trying to do so would lead to a degradation of that resource through uh, erosion or, as, as we saw in the Dust Bowl days of, of the United States, the, the tilling some of these marginal lands then exposes them to loss of topsoil through wind or water erosion and um, so we we perhaps can bring some of those marginal lands into production but it comes at a cost yeah so I think I think it's actually a beautiful thing that we can take something that has no other uh, human food producing um, purpose and that's the marginal land and we put ruminant livestock on it a solar powered system um, that allows us to make use of something that we cannot digest, which is cellulose, and upcycle it, not just recycle, but upcycle it into highly nutritious animal-sourced food. So we should really celebrate ruminant livestock as a result and not, uh, and not uh, chastise it like uh, many people do. And, and indeed, it, too many times today, it seems to me, we're in the us and them, either or kind of arguments. And the reality is that ruminant animal agriculture is thoroughly integrated into all agricultural systems around the world. They look very different, different parts of the world. But for example, in California, the almond industry has a byproduct. And that byproduct comes into the dairy. Could you talk about some of those examples? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> have you ever wondered why we have so many dairy cows in California? The reason, one of the main reasons is that we have 400 specialty crops here in this state. Agriculture by far is the most important agricultural state in the United States, twice as large as the number two with respect to agricultural output. There are 400 specialty crops grown here. And these specialty crops uh, have a lot of byproducts, co-products that come with them, but that have no other human nutritional purpose. And so approximately 20 to 30 percent of all of these co-products and byproducts end up in a ruminant um, rumen uh, to be digested and made into animal source food. So uh, our dairy industry is a very important recycling part of um, the agricultural sector in the state of California. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we have so many dairies here. We have 20% uh, of the U.S. dairy industry located right here between Sacramento and Bakersfield. Mm -hmm. And if, if we weren't able to utilize those um, byproducts in livestock feeding systems, what would be the cost of not being able to utilize them? Well, if we wouldn't use those byproducts and co-products, then we would have to, uh, first of all, go produce that milk elsewhere. And um, we would have to grow food specifically to satisfy these nutritional needs of those cows. If we were to get rid of the cows here that currently are largely fed these co-products, and these dairies were to go someplace else, then what would occur is um, described as leakage. 
Because if we were to close down, let's say, dairies here, then um, those cows would go someplace else, most likely into regions where dairies are less efficient than they are here, um, but yet they would produce equal or greater emissions than they did here. So you want to um, produce livestock in a way that makes use of other co and byproducts, and ruminants are just masterful in doing so, um, and where those co and byproducts are produced, and California is one of these places, as I said before, um, that's really the best place where you should locate those, um, those animal uh, industries. And, um, and I don't think that they will go anywhere. I mean, we might lose some dairies, like uh, we are throughout the country, but we're not losing cows, and we haven't over the last few decades. Yeah. So um, there's a phenomenon occurring throughout the country, which is that the number of dairies is decreasing in Wisconsin, in New York, in Pennsylvania. You see large numbers of dairies getting out of business, going out of business. <clears throat> Most of those are relatively smaller in size, okay, and they have they have a hard time competing with many of the more of the larger dairies, and we have that situation here in California as well. Uh, we are losing dairies, but we are not losing cows, and that means a consolidation process that occurs throughout the country, in fact, throughout the world. And of course, if if you have this co-product or byproduct and you didn't have an outlet for it, you'd have to dispose of it. It would increase the cost of the crop. Um, it would represent then another environmental burden for lack of a better word. So as people are entertaining ideas, they don't always look at all of the costs of what they're entertaining. They tend to only see the benefits that they perceive. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it would be a similar thing when people look at, for example, um, plant source protein and they say, well, why don't we just feed that to humans directly? And the point is that rumin, ruminant animals actually increase the human edible plant, uh, protein supply. Even when you just look at the human edible protein that they're fed, which is a small part of their total ration. So that, that upcycling that you mentioned earlier is a critical aspect of their role in food systems. And you always have to consider what goes in. Uh, oftentimes I hear activists uh, using statistics, comparing um, what kind of food uh, has a relatively lower environmental footprint per calorie produced. Now, Calories produced are really a very bad denominator. Um, what really matters is um, how nutrient-rich a food is, not how calorie-rich a food is. I don't think anybody would seriously um, say that we are calorie-deprived in this country. I mean, just look around you, and uh, calories don't seem to be the problem. In fact, well, maybe they are the problem, but in the, in the opposite direction, that people eat too much of it. Um, it is about nutrient density and not um, calorie richness. And so we should really think about how can we produce those foods that have a better arrangement of nutrients uh, per unit of, of food that we consume. And in that regard, uh, you cannot beat animal source foods. Well, okay. So 
I've spoken a lot about the, the, the need for more animal source food globally in, in humanity's diet, that, that there's objective evidence of a significant portion of humanity that's suffering from a lack of animal source food in their diet. Um, but part of that integration that I mentioned earlier is if people entertain an idea of removing livestock agriculture, they don't always understand that that livestock agriculture provides some key inputs into crop agriculture. Oh, no doubt. You know, I, I mentioned before this business card analogy here, right? With the two thirds being uh, marginal land and the one third being arable land, both in the world and also in this country, by the way, okay? Half of this arable land that's used to grow crops is fertilized with chemical fertilizer and the other half is fertilized with what's called organic fertilizers. And those organic fertilizers, almost without exception, come out of some animals, but that's oftentimes overlooked. I don't mean to be crude here, but it's the truth that uh, approximately half of all arable crops in this country and throughout the world stem from animal manure. In fact, what surprises many is that if you, for example, eat organic food, organic crops, fruits and vegetables and so on, then almost without exception, these have been fertilized with animal manure. And so uh, absolutely there's this interdependency between animal and crop agriculture. Every farmer understands that, but unfortunately many people who are very vocal and maybe well-meaning uh, seem to be not well trained and informed in this in this regard. And a significant number of farmers in the world and a significant amount of the food that feeds humanity are coming from relatively small farms, many of which are dependent still on draft animals for key operations within their farms. And so a lot of those are oxen or other ruminant animals. Um, and the, there's also something like a billion people in the world that are still burning dirty biofuels for cooking. And a significant amount of that is, again, the dung, which one is a health risk to the people, as well as then you're losing the nutrients from the dung when you're burning it. So the, we, we have these multiple contributions to humanity's welfare that aren't always well appreciated by the conversations that entertain a possible elimination or reduction in, in animal agriculture. You know, I don't take uh, the discussion of people saying we need to get rid of animal agriculture. I don't take that very seriously. I, I really don't. I mean, I hear that and I know there are some activists out there that toot this and for some bizarre reason, they get um, a large forum presented to them uh, by parts of the media. But uh, I don't see um, I don't see that the population overall is falling for that at all. In fact, uh, you know, last year I I was a little I guess I was amused, I have to say, because The Economist had a title um, which was announcing that 2019 was the year of the vegan. 2019 was the year of the vegan. And I thought, well, okay, so that's going to be interesting. And uh, I read what they projected. They said that about a quarter of all young Americans are vegans now. And I thought, 
what are they talking about? What are they talking about? They talked about uh, plant-based food, uh, you know, plant-based alternatives to meat and so on, and how they will soon take over. You know, I'm a scientist and I look at numbers and, uh, you know, I looked at the plant-based sales this year and what I found was that all plant-based alternatives combined um, amount to 0.6% and the original, the meat, the actual meats, 99.4%, okay? So it is true that the plant-based alternatives have a market and it's also true that they have a growing market, but the base is so low that the totals are they, it's a totally different ball game. And for media like The Economist to come up with these kind of title pages and write stories mm. after stories after stories about um, how victorious and so on these alternatives are and how doomed animal source foods are, that's just, it's just ridiculous. It is uh, far-fetched and not true. Mm. And part of that is the mythology about one you're going to kill yourself by eating animal source food, and then you're going to kill the planet by producing animal source food. And and both of those at their core are obviously false. Well, animal source foods are more resource intensive in their production. Okay, there's no doubt about that. But they are also much more nutrient rich as food items. So you obviously cannot compare a kilo of uh, some vegetable to a kilo of beef or pork or something else, okay? These are totally different food items with a vastly different nutritional profile. So, um, and even if, I mean, I completely acknowledge that animal source food has a greater environmental footprint compared to plant-based alternatives. I, I completely agree with that. But first of all, when we go to the supermarket shopping, and we, I mean, Frank now being Joe Blow or Joe Doe or whatever that person is called, um, <clears throat> that elusive um, person going to the supermarket, um, would normally look at um, main issues being taste, price, um, taste, price. Some of them look at nutrition, you know, nutritional profiles, but not many. Um, and, and these are the main parameters, okay? So some of the folks in the ivory tower where I reside, uh, they also might look at um, carbon footprint, water footprint, animal welfare parameters, and so on. But the vast majority of people does not. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all in favor of optimizing sustainability of what we eat, okay? That's what I thrive for and what I do day in, day out. But that's not what Joe Blow does when they go when they go into the supermarket. That's not their main focus. It is ours as scientists assisting farmers to improve and optimize. And and maybe it's worth spending a little time because sustainability has a lot of aspects to it. And too often the public or the popular conversation only runs toward the environmental. Um, but it's also deeply concerned with profitability and long-term uh, viability of enterprises. And it's got to do with, as you mentioned earlier, worker safety, and it's got to do with um, ecological services and other things besides what typically draws the, as you said, the headlines. So if you were to ask me what 
I regard as the main pillars of sustainability, I would say there are five. I would say, I, first of all, I completely agree. Uh, sustainability is not just environmental sustainability, uh, but sustainability, uh, environmental sustainability is one important pillar, okay? So, but within the environment, what is, uh, what's included is air impacts, water impacts, soil impacts, climate impacts and so forth, okay? So that's one of the five pillars. The second one is animal welfare. Very important, husbandry and housing of animals are critical, not just in the consumer eye, consumer's eye, but, but also, of course, for the producer. That is the absolute basis of their existence, to have animals that are in good welfare and in good health. Um, that's the basis of what a farmer uh, has to work with. Um, and also, of course, the profits that this, this that this person makes, uh, those profits are contingent upon animals being in good welfare. So environmental quality, animal welfare, number two, then food safety, very important. We take this for granted here, but in other parts of the world, they don't take it for granted, food safety. Fourth one is worker health and safety and worker, you know, attracting workers, retaining workers on a farm is paramount. If you were to ask a thousand farmers in California what their most important sustainability consideration is, they will tell you it's workers. Okay, that's not what the consumers associate with an important sustainability issue, but that's what farmers associate with it. And the number five is financial viability. So the environment, animal welfare, food safety, workers, and financial viability are, in my opinion, the five pillars sustainability rests upon. And what I find really interesting, when I look around the world, I now know that there's a crystal ball that I can look at here in California if I'm wondering what will come up as a new topic five years from now. Why and how? Because there is such a thing as a sequential um, raising of these topics. It starts in Northern Europe, in the Netherlands, in Denmark, in Germany, that, that they start talking about issues such as the carbon footprint of food, or food safety issues, or animal welfare, animal rights. All right now, biodiversity, land use change, and so on. Then it, it kind of plays out all over Europe. And then it jumps across the Atlantic. And the first place it, it lands in, in North America is California. We then have our field day here with those topics. Right now, it's the carbon footprint. And then uh, we get regulation, legislation, and so on. And then it goes to Oregon, to your place, goes to Washington, and so on. And then it spreads throughout North America. And then Interestingly, it takes another five to 10 years after that, that these, these uh, respective sustainability topics jump across the Pacific into China. The Chinese right now are mainly concerned with the topic of food safety. There, when people, when Chinese go to the supermarket, they are wondering, shall I buy this product A or product B, C, D, or E? All of them being milk. Okay, let's say, um, and it's based on which brand they think is safe to drink, is safe to consume. Nobody here would go into the supermarket and think, shall I buy this brand or that brand or the other brand because of food safety? But 30, 40 years ago, we would have done that. So it's interesting to me to see this, um, this development throughout the world and it never fails.
it, it just never fails. I, uh, I did this over the last 20 years and it has always been that way. The Europeans started, we follow a few years later and then you follow us and, and so on. And so it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. Okay. I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering because I, I do sense a certain amount of um, perceived um, value of a product coming from one management scheme being better, safer, healthier than one coming from, say, um, standard uh, production practice in the United States. Now, it's not the, you know, does this have melanin in it, which sort right. of would be the, the, the extreme uh, example that I think you were referring to. Um, so, yeah, there's lots we could talk about there. Just to kind of come back to these, you know, what, what are, when, when we think about, you should pardon the expression, the hoof prints of um, ruminant animal agriculture, and, and in that more limited environmental sense uh, section that, that you were talking about, that pillar, the, the, the chief driver is the fact that because they're a ruminant, they produce methane as a result of fiber digestion. Yeah, so <clears throat> ruminants are accused of all different kinds of things. Water use is one, carbon footprint is another. Uh, you find unbelievable numbers out there. Uh, I just, last week, I know you're on Twitter, I'm on Twitter. Uh, last week I was, uh, I was just amazed to find the recent, the most recent numbers uh, that, that were tooted about water consumption by, by beef cattle and dairy cattle. So they use, uh, they, they present enormous numbers, um, but those numbers are um, largely based on green water consumption and green water being rainwater. Okay, so obviously if you have a ranch with a thousand acres, let's say, then whether you have cattle on that land or not, you have rainfall falling on that land. And then the grasses grow and uh, it, without cattle, the, grass, the, the grasses would still consume some of that water and some of it would just percolate into the groundwater and so on. So now that you have cattle on there, those people ass assign that water that falls on that land to the production of that meat. And that's of course a joke. Um, with respect to the carbon footprint, uh, something really uh, interesting uh, has to be considered. And it hadn't been in the past, namely that there are huge differences across those different so-called greenhouse gases gases such as CO2 carbon dioxide that's associated when you burn fossil fuel like oil, coal, and gas. So for example, um, CO2 is a so-called stock gas, okay? And that's referred to as a stock gas because every time you burn gas by driving to a supermarket, let's say, then you put out CO2 through the exhaust pipe of your car and that CO2 stays in the atmosphere for a thousand years, a thousand years. Every time you have ever driven a car, you put out CO2 into the atmosphere and all of that is still there. Every time you drive your car, you add to the existing stock of CO2 that's already there, okay? So it's a long-lived climate pollutant. Methane is very different. Methane does not do that. Methane does not accumulate in the atmosphere. It's a so-called flow gas and it's roughly produced and destroyed at equal rates. 
And the fact that methane is destroyed has not found its way into most public policy applications. Everybody just quantifies the emissions of methane, meaning how much is produced, leaving out the fact that there's an atmospheric process called hydroxyl oxidation that destroys methane at almost the same rate. And that is why particularly ruminant livestock has such a bad rap out there because people only look at how much is put out and not how much is destroyed. But this is really important. And now that we understand that this has to be done, we know that the carbon footprint of ruminant livestock, for example, here in the United States, is at least, at least uh, exaggerated by a factor of four, at least by a factor of four. And that's just assuming that cattle herds are constant, that they are not changing over time, okay? But we know that they have changed over time. Back in 1975, we had 140 million beef cattle here. Today, we have 94. So we have 50 million fewer beef cattle today than we had in 1975. 50, five zero million fewer beef cattle, but we are today producing the same amount of beef with a much smaller herd than we did back then. Okay. On the dairy so, side, we used to have 25 million dairy cows. Today we have 9 million, but we are producing 60% more milk with the nine than we used to with the 25. Mm -hmm. And so that's that, that key aspect, uh, to at least to my mind, I mean, uh, I, I admit to being biased. I'm an agronomist. I, I have that agricultural sort of background. And, and when I look around the world and I realize that the one, we have to, I believe we have to increase productivity and efficiency of ruminant animal agriculture globally. If we're going to meet the goals that sit 30 years out in front of us right now. Um, but by increasing the productivity and efficiency, we lower we have the potential to lower environmental impact. Um, and that's what you just outlined when you produce the same amount of beef, but with one third less animals in the national herd. Um, you could either produce the same amount with fewer animals, or you could produce more um, with the, the same number of animals and arguably still lower the environmental impact. And so that in addition to that, I think oftentimes I know from conversations I've had with others that people are surprised by the idea that when you feed ruminant animals a higher energy ration, more digestible energy, lower in fiber, within the bounds of a balanced ration, you see emissions decline, methane emissions decline. It's, would, would that be something that you argue with or have anything you'd like to say about that? No, I wouldn't argue with what you said, but I would argue with how I would explain it to okay. people interested in this topic. If, um, you know, many people out there in the public are interested in reducing the environmental footprint of livestock. But they will not understand if you were to say we need to improve efficiencies in livestock production through improved feeding or so. They, they would just not understand what you're saying. So what I have learned is that we have to communicate 
uh, in a different way using examples that uh, people can actually relate to. For example, if somebody were to ask me, what does that mean, better feed efficiency leading to lower emissions? Then I would say to that person, well, I assume you drive a car. And I assume that your parents also used to drive a car and maybe your grandparents used to drive a car. Your car today is much more fuel efficient than your parents' car and you know, tremendously more fuel efficient than your grandparents' car, I assume. And they will say yes. All three cars drove from A to B, let's say 100 miles, but with very different amounts of gas used. And the most fuel efficient car, the one you don't normally drive today versus those more historic cars, um, by using less gas to drive the same distance, by using less gas, they are burning less carbon, putting less emissions into the air. They all get that. A more fuel efficient car means you burn less gas, means you put less emissions into the air. They all get that. The same is true for our cars today. Our cars have a much higher efficiency, and that means you have relatively either constant inputs and higher outputs, or you have lower inputs and constant outputs. But we have learned to drastically change this picture. This dairy picture I gave you before, and by the way, I, I failed to say that methane has only a lifespan of 10 years. CO2 has a lifespan of 1,000 years. Methane has a lifespan of only 10 years. What I failed to say before is that, for example, on the dairy side, where we used to have 25 million dairy cows, today we have 9 million, we have reduced sorry, we have increased with this much smaller herd, increased milk production by 60%. That means the carbon footprint of our dairy industry in this country has gone down by two thirds per glass of milk, by two thirds. On the beef side, we are today producing 18%, one 18% of the global beef with 6% of the global beef herd. Now, everybody in their right mind would say, you guys have figured out how to do this, okay? You guys have obviously figured out how to do this. And these improved efficiencies, everybody who understands efficiencies will understand what they do to emissions, okay? There's just no doubt, there's no doubt in my mind that this is the way forward. We have figured this out here. Many other parts throughout the world have not. And what I'm not saying that we should go around colonial style and tell people how to produce their food, but we should show them how incremental changes can be made to help them satisfy their nutritional needs in the years to come, because it will not be a viable way to just grow livestock herds. And that's what's happening right now in much of the, of the third world. That will have a very negative environmental impact if they double or triple or quadruple their livestock herds. They can produce similar or even more produce uh, produce with fewer inputs by improving efficiencies, just like we've done here. Shifting gears a little bit, but still in the topic. When we talk about the emissions from essential industry, and it, it's important, I and I think you you played a, a role in um, challenging livestock's long shadow, which is where we get this trope that 
if that's the right word, that um, livestock produce more emissions than all transportation, right? That that was that, and that came over a decade ago and was thanks to efforts that you played a significant part in that was retracted and different estimates are out. So now if we talk about US versus global figures and we look at agriculture versus other industries, animal agriculture versus all of agriculture, uh, I think that there's some key misunderstandings that occur there. Um, maybe let's take the global versus U.S. figures. Yeah, so this is one of the worst nightmares out there in communication of agricultural impacts on the environment uh, that I see, that people keep using global numbers to tell people here what to eat. So, for example, there are some folks who say a quarter of all global greenhouse gases are associated with agriculture. That's the number you hear often now. Okay. These percent numbers don't really mean much. Why not? Because about two thirds of all countries in the world are still at a stage where they're developing countries or emerging countries, where their vehicle, their industries, their other emissions, power production and so on emissions, are relatively small and their livestock herds large. Okay, so for example, a country like Ethiopia or uh, Sudan or Angola or so, they have a lot of agriculture, but they have a small, you know, all the other sectors are relatively smaller. Hence, in these countries, agricultural emissions are relatively high. In most developed countries, the opposite is true. Approximately, depending upon which country we're we are talking about here, 10% of all greenhouse gases stem from agriculture in most developed countries. So in many developing countries, agriculture might be a majority of all greenhouse gases produced um, versus in developed countries where it's you know approximately 10%. Animal agriculture globally, globally is believed to uh, be responsible for approximately 14%, 1-4. That's an FAO number, 14%. But that global number must also not be used in a country like ours here, because here in the United States, that number would be closer to 4%. That's the official EPA number. Um, and then there are other countries like Paraguay, where that number might be 50% for livestock. Okay, why? Because they have twice as many cattle as they have people. So global numbers, the use of global numbers is not useful at all when depicting the impact of what you eat on climate. If you are interested in what you eat, what that impact is on, on climate, then you need to look at what that food that you eat, how that food was raised and where it was raised. And then you get a feel for that. Okay, so in the United States, if you uh, follow the EPA, it's approximately 4% of all greenhouse gases that are associated with the livestock sector. And that's beef, dairy, swine, sheep, and, and so on, approximately 4%. But that's direct emissions only, meaning that's uh, belching and it's manure and it's feed and so on. It's not the entire supply chain, okay, it's not everything. Why is it not everything? Because if you wanna do the, the so-called cradle to grave 
uh, assessment where you look at really everything that contributes to emissions of a sector, then you need to have that information. And for many sectors of society, we don't have that information. For example, for transportation, we don't have that emission, uh, that inf emission information. For livestock, we do. For livestock, we do. In the United States, if you look at comprehensive assessment, beef is responsible for approximately 3% of total emissions in this country. Dairy, approximately 2% of all emissions. So these are now life cycle assessment uh, emission numbers, not EPA numbers. So they are higher than the EPA numbers, but they give you a general idea. Globally, uh, the dairy sector is approximately responsible for so the beef sector is, uh, is responsible for 6% of global greenhouse gases and the dairy sector for approximately uh, 3%. So that these are rough numbers, okay? And I think the U.S. beef, back to the point of how much the U.S. beef industry contributes to the global beef supply versus its portion of the global greenhouse gas emissions, again, magnifies or illustrates the point that the industry is efficient in terms of its contribution, if you will, to uh, greenhouse, anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. But then we, we haven't yet looked at the key factor, which I've, I've seen some postings about the it's not just emissions from agriculture and forestry. There's also a significant amount of sequestration going on. And in the US, again, versus globally, I've, I've just had reason to be looking at some global figures, but I think you posted something recently about what the US figures are already today. Yeah, this is really important. The EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, publishes a report annually called the EPA Greenhouse Gas Emissions Sources and Sinks. That's the name of it. Sources and Sinks. And uh, it is bewildering that everybody reporting on these emissions will only talk about the sources. For agriculture, the source for agriculture emissions, uh, the source... Uh, quantification is approximately 10.5%. And that's referred to as agriculture and land use. And land use also includes forestry, okay? Agriculture and forestry, in other words, in the United States are responsible for 10.5% of all greenhouse gases emitted into the atmosphere. But if you only read a few pages further on, then you find that the same sector is a sink for 11.8%, a source for 10.5%, and to sink for 11.8%. And if you don't believe me, I don't mean you, I mean whoever the listener is or the viewer, uh, just go to the EPA emission inventory sources and sinks and you will find those numbers. What you will also find is that if you so wish to look at global numbers, then you need to go to the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. And there you will find that the same is true globally, namely that agriculture and forestry are a greater sink than they are a source for greenhouse gases. And the reason is that plants and soils are the largest sinks out there, the largest uh, bodies in our ecosystem that can pull carbon out of the air and keep it in our soils if we treat those soils properly. 
okay, if we treat them properly. That's interesting because I, I was looking at figures, <clears throat> I think it was EPA estimate of global emissions. And they were making the point that 20% um, of the emissions from their agriculture land use category, the, the value that they were estimating the sequestration currently at was 20% of the emissions in that one sector. Um, and then I found an estimate from a 2002, 2012, paper um, on how much could be sequestered if we could improve all the degraded soils. And essentially that doubled it. Um, but again, pointing to the fact, regardless of what the numbers are, we're talking about the only industry <laughs> that currently is in any way offering the potential of significant carbon sequestration. There's lots of talk about other technologies, yeah. um, but this one is doing it now. And then you could talk about what could be achieved by improving management or whatever, but too many of those conversations don't acknowledge what's already happening, I think. It is agriculture and forestry that are the only sectors of our society and globally that have the ability to pull carbon out of the air and keep it in the ground. And uh, in my opinion, it is a travesty that we don't acknowledge that and that we don't further incentivize it. Now, there are now some governments throughout the world that incentivize carbon capture by paying farmers to grow trees on their land. Why do they do that? They do that because they say, if you plant trees on your land, then these trees pull carbon out of the air during photosynthesis. That's true. Mm. But guess what methane mitigation does? When you reduce methane, and we have seen that all over the world, particularly in developed countries, by the way, where we have seen very strong reductions of methane over the years, then that means that you are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere because methane is always destroyed by a natural process called hydroxyl oxidation. That destruction process is always there. And it's normally in balance with the production of, these, of this gas. If the production is now reduced because you mitigate this gas, then you have a net negative warming impact, which is a fancy word for cooling. Mm -hmm. So incentivizing farmers to plant trees, yeah, you know, why not? you pull some carbon out of the air, but why not incentivizing farmers to reduce methane? This would have a short-term impact on our climate, inducing cooling. Hmm. So I think that in the years to come, you will hear much more about that because now some wheels are turning in some of the governments that I've been interacting with, uh, coming to the conclusion that we need to incentivize farmers not just foresters, but also farmers in reducing gases such as methane, because that will have a societal benefit. Well, and, and, and hopefully people don't just look at, as you just mentioned, just look at trees. I mean, trees are important. I just spoke with a researcher in, in Brazil, and we're looking at these sort of mixed uh, livestock cropping silvo pastoral systems that have tremendous potential, but in many parts of the world, oh, 
let's just say the Great Plains, for example, um, the natural vegetation there is grassland uh, for a number of reasons. And so we don't, what is it? We, we want to become more results driven, not necessarily process driven. That, that we need to understand what are, what are the results that we're hoping to see and then how are we going to assess those results? And then however individuals get there, it should be left up to individual managers rather than some prescribed, uh, that at least is my approach. Um, so we've, we've got, we've got all these separations between reality and the public perception that the, at least the pub, the, the popular perception, let's say. And, and a lot of that's driven by any number of, of players that interact with the media that then put forth information. So you, you mentioned it earlier, this, this center that, you've created at UC Davis. So could you talk to us about the CLEAR Center, what you hope to achieve, what people um, sh can learn by following and, and reading the, the materials that you're generating from that center and your colleagues? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, um, I have always been uh, interested in communicating the research that we do uh, with the public, and in the past, I did this through, um, you know, speaker engagements and so on. Um, but over the years, people asked me, Frank, why are you not more on social media? And I thought, social media? No, that's not me. I said, oh yeah, you have to be on Twitter. I said, on Twitter? That's the last thing I need. You know, what can I write in 280 characters that's meaningful and uh, thought-provoking? But boy, was I was I wrong. And um, I have to say. I really, um, I really, it changed my life when one and a half years ago I entered the Twitter sphere. <laughs> and I'll get to the clear sign in just a minute. Uh, what changed? Well, what changed was that all the different discussions I had here in California and maybe here in the United States, um, all of a sudden were elevated uh, onto the global level. All of a sudden I met all different kinds of people all throughout the world who invited me to um, be part of work groups and uh, publications and so on. I had governments contact me. Um, our work has informed public policy on the regional, on the national, on the international level, oftentimes triggered through work on social media. Um, but then I uh, realized, uh, you know, what I do on my Twitter, uh, with my Twitter handle there, that's just not enough. I mean, I, um, I, was, uh, I was just blown away that I, at some point, reached, uh, you know, 3 million impressions every month. And as an academician at a university, that's not normally what happens. I mean, what we normally do is publish papers and we get a couple hundred or so citations and that's what we uh, pat ourselves on the, on the shoulder for, right? You, you know that all too well yourself. Um, but uh, if you really want to uh, reach the mainstream, then that's just not enough. And so, uh, I then decided I have to uh, build a larger platform. So I discussed with the campus administration one way of doing so, and they suggested either an institute or a center, and, uh, and I agreed that's what I needed. I needed a center with a research core consisting of postdocs and you know, 
research associates on the one hand, and a communication score. Because what many scientists uh, don't pay enough attention to is on how to communicate what they find with those that need to know it. Uh, those that are either farmers or those that are policymakers, those that are uh, journalists and so on. And so I'm probably one of the very few academicians in this country who have hired journalists to work for me and with me in the CLIA Center to communicate the things that we find. And uh, so the CLIA Center and CLIA stands for Clarity and Leadership and Environmental Awareness and Research, CLEAR. Um, the CLEAR Center has really made a difference to me and to many uh, because it has advanced a discussion, for example, on methane, uh, far beyond those who typically would discuss that. And it has informed many people who are in the public policy domain that what they thought to be true might have to be rethought. And uh, to me, that's really meaningful. You know, uh, the impact uh, that I normally had had been um, had exponentially grown since uh, that center was established. So you find it if you go to clear.ucdavis.edu, you find it on the web. And uh, my Twitter handle is ghgguru. Ghg, of course, that's for greenhouse gas. Um, and um, and so uh, please come and visit us on those platforms. And Clear is also now on Twitter, and I'll be posting links to everything in the show notes when, when it goes up. Um, it does sort of strike me as being um, extension finally catching up with technology, that um, to a certain extent, um, extension hasn't been an early adopter of technology. Um, in this sphere, and maybe one of the things your your effort was launched pre, um, I, I call it BC before COVID, um, but but yeah. after COVID, um, I think that a lot of efforts within Extension are going to be reevaluating how you know historically programs have been delivered and how to make continue to use the technology that we've learned how to use in the last, you know, nine months or so. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's not just about uh, Twitter, of course. Um, what what I do, what the Clear Center does, is uh, we we see articles that are out there in, in the media, and uh, some of them are just really misleading and written by people who had a few hours to uh, to figure things out that they have no training in and uh, and then all of a sudden it's in a major major out, outlet so we write rebuttals we write um twitter threats you know consisting of maybe 10 or 15 individual uh, tweets that are connected or we write uh, blogs uh, many blogs uh, and and they are quite popular um we are we are all over this medium and uh, use different platforms. Also, sometimes a podcast like with you, and we do those with with many others as well. And um, you know, we produce some videos. Uh, one is called Rethinking Methane on YouTube, available uh, five minutes uh, that really explain to you what methane does. You might think it's uh, it's boring, but it's actually that topic is the Achilles heel of animal agriculture. Mm -hmm. uh, methane is the determining factor in the carbon footprint of livestock. 
So by those by understanding those new findings, you really understand why that discussion went the wrong way for too long. Yeah, and I think also um, that reminds me of the whole land use issue because in some parts of the world, the issue of converting uh, forest into agricultural use frequently goes through a grazing phase. Um, but the grazing is not was not the purpose ultimately. It's it's to go produce some crop. But for a few years, perhaps in the middle, while they're finishing the, the clearing and conversion process, cattle are going to be there. So they put all that on the cattle rather than the rest of the agricultural development that's taking place in the world and so or in that region. And so that also is a way that the, the footprint gets skewed. And you mentioned something to me in a previous conversation that we were having a, a couple weeks ago. And I have to admit that I went and got a copy of the IPCC report. And I did a, a PDF word search in that document. And I don't know how many hundred pages is that report. And you want to talk about what that word is that doesn't appear in there? <laughs> that was photosynthesis. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, when you talk about carbon and carbon cycling, uh, in and around food production, and you don't uh, mention that word photosynthesis, then you haven't really understood uh, carbon cycling very well. And please do not take my words as me making fun of them. Um, but I do have to say that I was astounded. Uh, it was astounding to me that um, the process, which is really the base for how carbon cycles through from the atmosphere through plants through animals and back into the atmosphere how that how that is not uh, part of the discussion that to me is bewildering and i mean it's 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 the fundamental of energy flow it's where we get the oxygen that we need to breathe and i mentioned it to a classmate of mine and he spent he did his masters as he said staring at a co2 analyzer in plant physiology, I mean, that was, and I shared that with him and he was like, no, wait, <laughs> really? Um, and again, not to make fun, but to point out that the, the attempts at modeling in many cases aren't as complete and as well informed as many assume them to be, including many of the people that are involved in the work itself. And, and I think that your, your experience with Livestock's Long Shadow pointed that out. You know, people were sincere. They were trying to do this work. And there were some key issues that hadn't been considered. And I very much appreciate that approach to the conversation rather than the us versus them yeah. kind of approach that that too frequently things devolve into um so i i just wanted to tell you that i i went and looked it up and said son of a gun frank was right there it is um or there it isn't maybe that's more accurate so i i want people to to spend some time thinking about what we've spoken about i'd like them to um, 
look at the the resources that Clear makes available, and I'm trying to remember who was it that modeled um, if if livestock, if animal agriculture was removed from North American farming, what the impact would be. Oh, what was the the names were um, Hall and White. Hall and White uh, published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences back in 2017, and they looked at the extreme. They looked at uh, what would a U.S. going vegan do to our carbon footprint and do to our nutritional security. And uh, what they found was that if all 330 million Americans were to go vegan, we would reduce our carbon footprint by 2.6%. Everybody going meatless Monday would reduce our carbon footprint by 0.3%. But um, particularly in the first of these, uh, in, the, in the former scenario, the vegan scenario, they cautioned that that would not allow this country to uh, to be um, well to be food secure uh, mm -hmm. because we would not uh, be able to satisfy the essential nutrients needed in human nutrition. Um, so to me, that was really interesting. But I have to tell you. Um, I I completely feel that people's choices around food are very personal and very private, okay? Mm -hmm. I, uh, I feel that they are as personal and private as our religious choices, as our partner choices, as our political choices, and so on. What we eat is our business, okay? It's nobody else's business what I eat. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I can help those people producing food uh, minimizing those impacts. And that's what I do. And that's what people are, like you are, are involved in. And, and, um, and I think that's really important. I think what, what concerns me, and it concerns me more and more the older I get, is that there's this food fight out there where different parties are throwing arguments at each other, shouting, not just talking, but shouting at each other and not listening at all. And uh, that's not productive and uh, it doesn't get us anywhere, okay? And uh, it really must stop. I mean, we need to be civil about this and, oh, and see how we can produce food in the most responsible way. And, and, and key to that also, and I agree completely, the, the, the critical point is how can you be an informed consumer without information? And I think that what we've discussed already, what you've published and others uh, clearly points to, we have not been well informed. Uh, this despite all the technology and everything that's at our, you know, we, we have access to information. Frequently it's, as you said, we publish it in the journal and then we get, you know, 10 citations and isn't that a good job? And, um, but I think more and more people, are willing to seek it out and hopefully what we've accomplished here today is is an introduction so that people know now where to go to find some more information and and of course i'm talking to people who are dealing from a human health and, and metabolic health perspective and if it turns out that people maybe need more animal source food in order to enjoy optimal metabolic health, well, they should feel comfortable doing that, knowing that it's possible to produce that in a way that enhances, preserves the environments in which they're being produced. And people don't need to feel guilty about improving their health. And 
So hopefully all that's come across. Um, I've asked you a lot of questions. It's only fair, doctor, um, to um, throw any back at me if you have them. Yeah, so uh, what motivates you the most about what you do? Why do you do a, post uh, a podcast like this? Hmm. First of all, it's a sodcast. Um, <laughs> again, I, I, I hope that what I can be is a bridge between all these disciplines that exist scattered across all these institutions and agencies so that we can all learn from each other. And I hope that at the end of the day, people can enjoy better health than they currently enjoy. We've gone over the statistics before about what is a reality in high income countries. And then I'm learning more and more about the reality in the low and middle income countries. So I am driven by the vision of seeing more of humanity get to how to increase the flourishing of humanity everywhere. I'm convinced that when we do that, we'll achieve lower impact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and we'll also get more human beings capable of achieving their potential, which will go a long way towards solving whatever problems are coming. Um, you know, now that we can get, you know, billions of brains communicating almost in real time, what problems can't be addressed? But those brains have to be properly nourished as they develop et cetera, et cetera. So, so that, and, and also there's a sense that I have of being very fortunate in, in where I've been, where I am, the opportunities I've been given. And so I'm just trying to kind of push that further down the road so others might benefit. Mm -hmm. Very well. I have to tell you, I really enjoyed your podcast. Very much so. Thank you. And uh, all my interactions with you over those years have been uh, very fruitful and enjoyable. And I want to thank you for that. It, it, it's an honor and a privilege and sincere pleasure on my part. And, uh, you know, one of the things that didn't happen this year was a visit back to UC Davis, which is a lovely part of it. It's not quite as nice as Western Oregon, but it, it'll do. Um, and, and, uh, somebody, um, one of the, the people that I interviewed made the point, you know, he's, he's in his fifties. I'm in my sixties. And he said, who's next? Who, who, who are we? You know, he said something about, we've got 10 years left. And it's like, Oh my God. Um, but, but who's, who are we training? Who are we, you know, trying to um, bring along to succeed us. Um, and, and so that's also an idea that's in my mind of, of 
you know, encouraging people to get into forage agriculture, encourage people to get into ruminant animal agriculture, in, encouraging people to get into international agriculture. Mm -hmm. and, and all of these aspects all play a part. And so I guess that that's something else. And, and seeing what you're doing, you see, Davis, that's encouraging to me. Um, and I thank you for it. Thank you. Yeah, to me, sustainability personally means training people. I always have uh, six PhD students and to see what becomes of them once they graduate and uh, how they become important um, educators and scientists and so on, um, that fills me with pride and with uh, you know deep satisfaction. Well done. All right. Happy New Year and look forward to the next time. Same here. Happy New Year to you. Thanks for the interview.